2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bible again and open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the passage I just read for us moments ago. We're going to carry on with our study in 2 Thessalonians. Yesterday morning, we had our annual prayer breakfast. For those of you who weren't here, for those of you who don't know what that is, every September, we try to set aside a Saturday morning, a full Saturday morning, three to four hours, to just pray together. Uh, It is a deeply, deeply encouraging time just to come together and to uh, commit our new season, our next fall season, to, to God's hands and ask for His blessing We pray for our own hearts to adore and delight in God. We pray for one another that we would grow in faith and increase in love. And we especially take the time to pray for the work of the gospel in our church, in our city, in our country, and in our world. And near the end of the meeting, we also had our brother Ricky Sanchez join us online so that we could specifically hear from him and how he's doing on the mission field and know how to better pray for him. It's a, it's a time for us to bring all kinds of prayers and supplications before the Lord. And, and we also do something very similar at the beginning of the calendar year. We take an entire week and pray one hour every day in the evening, and this is called our week of prayer. On top of that, Grace Fellowship Church has always, for many years, committed to weekly corporate prayer meetings. It has been our conviction in this church that prayer should be instrumental and not supplemental. It should be one of the core things that we do as the people of God, not just an add-on when we can afford the time to do it. I mean, when you really think about all that is that we are called to do as believers and as the church, we have only a limited amount of time to be together every week as a church. There are so many different pressing needs, so many things that we can be doing, so many different ministries that we can be engaging in and focusing on. So why, out of all those things, should we prioritize the practice of prayer? We do this. We we pray for brothers like Ricky. We pray for our other missionaries. We pray for the gospel work in our church, city, country, and world because we believe that the Lord accomplishes his purposes through the prayers of his people. We can be the kind of church that does anything and everything that is, is, is where there's a need. We can, we can commit to all kinds of different ministries, but if the Lord is not in what we are doing, if the Lord is not working through our ministries, then everything that we do is a waste of time. As many of you know, Charles Spurgeon had an incredibly effective ministry, and oftentimes people would 
come and ask him, what, what, what's, what's the secret to your success? Why, why is it that you're so successful as a minister? Why is it that your church seems to be growing and people come to faith every single time you preach? And do you know what he said to them? He said, it's because my people pray for me. It's because my people pray for me. When a couple young college students once came and visited Spurgeon to see firsthand what his ministry, what his famous ministry was like, he invited them into the church building and offered to show them the boiler room of the church. <laughs> boiler room? Uh, and clearly these guys weren't interested, but out of respect, they decided to follow Mr. Spurgeon. And uh, Spurgeon took them downstairs toward a room, and he slowly opened the door And what they saw wasn't a literal boiler room, but what they saw were hundreds of people on their knees praying that the Lord would bless the work. And he said, that's the boiler room. That's the heating place of the church. That's where the power comes from. That's where God's power is working through. My dear friends, in the wisdom of God, he has ordained that prayer would go hand in hand with the mission of the gospel If we are to devote ourselves to the Great Commission, then we must be the kind of people who devote ourselves to the life of prayer. And this is the major theme in our text today. One of the most important ways that we live in light of the Lord's return is to live by praying to our faithful God. If you look at our text today, you'll see that we're now moving into the final chapter of this letter. In chapter 1, Paul focused on comforting the saints because of their affliction. In chapter 2, Paul focused on correcting the saints because of their confusion. And in chapter 3, Paul is going to mainly focus on challenging the saints because of their idleness. But before we jump into the, the topic of idleness, Paul has this short interlude here that is focused on prayer and the faithfulness of God and the advancement of the gospel. He ended chapter 2 with a prayer for them that, that God would comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And now he calls on the church to reciprocate and pray for him and his fellow missionaries as they seek to take the good news of the gospel to the unbelieving world. So here's point number one. Pray for gospel advancement. Look at verse 1 again with me. Paul goes on and he says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as has happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. You know, it's been said before in Christian circles that you can tell what a person prioritizes by how they ask you to pray for them. You can tell what's mainly on their heart by what they say when they're requesting prayer. Now, I'm sure that's not always the case, but I think there is some truth to that statement. Assuming that's true, when you look at Paul's prayer request here in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, what do you think is the priority in his life? What do you think is on the very forefront of his mind? I just want you to notice in his language here that the very first thing he asked prayer for has nothing to do with his personal life. It has nothing to do with his personal health, nothing to do with his personal comfort, his personal living situation, or anything like that. Now, don't get me wrong. 
There is nothing, hear me when I say this, there's nothing inappropriate about praying for all of those things that are going on in our personal lives. As a matter of fact, we should be bringing all of that before the Lord in prayer. But when you read a passage like this, and not only that, when you read the other prayer requests of Paul in his other letters, it is crystal clear that what mattered most to the apostle wasn't his own personal life, but the advancement of the gospel. Let me just give you two other examples from the New Testament epistles. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, and also for me, he's asking for prayer. He says, and also for me, pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I wonder if you caught what he said in terms of his own personal circumstance. When he is writing both of these letters to the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae, he is in prison the very time that he is writing these words for prayer. And you hear nothing about his request to be freed. You hear nothing of his request to, to, be, to be out and, and in the world and not in prison. Rather, what he prioritizes is the advancement of the gospel. There is no prayer request for an easier set of circumstances. Whether free on the streets or in prison and jail, what matters most to Paul is the spread of the gospel and the success of the gospel. Look again at verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. What Paul does here is he personifies the good news of the gospel as a runner, as an athlete. Just like an athlete runs his race and wins the race and is then honored with a trophy, the gospel is to run swiftly in the world and be honored with the trophies of souls being saved in Christ. Paul does not presume on his apostolic ministry. He doesn't presume on his spiritual gifts. He doesn't presume on the previous success of his ministry in order to win souls for Jesus in the future. His trust is in the faithful preaching of the word of the Lord. I want you to see that in the text. It's the word of the Lord that must run swiftly. It is not a man's charismatic personality. It's not funny stories or captivating anecdotes. It's not a great performance or shameful spectacles. None of those things have the power to save a soul from sin and death. His trust is in the faithful preaching of the word of the Lord, and it's in the faithful prayers of the people of God. Paul asked that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored, which basically means for the gospel to be believed and for people to be saved. We see in other parts of the Bible that people did not honor the gospel by believing it. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Meaning that there are some who dishonored the gospel by thinking it was foolish, by seeing it as a stumbling block to life. In Acts chapter 17, verse 32, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And so you see in that part of the book of Acts that people dishonored the preaching of the gospel by mocking it. But then listen to what it says in Acts chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In that text, the word glorifying is actually the same word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, for honoring the gospel. In this instance, there are those who honored the gospel by believing it. This is Paul's priority and passion. He longs to see the gospel spread and the gospel succeed in saving souls for Jesus Christ. And he knows that In order for this to happen, God's people need to be praying because the Lord works through the prayers of his people. And as Christians, we should be able to pray this with a strong conviction that the Lord can actually do this, that he can actually save unbelievers through the faithful preaching of the gospel because he has already done this in our lives. That's what he says next to the Thessalonian believers. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, as happened among you, believers. When the gospel came to the Thessalonians, many of them believed in the word. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for, listen to this, for you received the word in much affliction with joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The gospel came to them, and it says they joyfully received the word, even in the midst of severe persecution. This is true for the Thessalonians, and this is true for all Christians here today. Brothers and sisters, you are here today as the people of God because God called you through the gospel and enabled you to honor and believe in the word of truth about Jesus Christ. And that means your life as a Christian is a living testimony to the power of God that he is able to save. And the fact that God has saved you from sin and death should produce in you more than anything else, more than anyone else, the greatest confidence to pray in faith for the advancement of the gospel and for the salvation of souls. If you're ever feeling uncertain about God's power to save you or save people, save unbelievers all around you, It might just be, on a very practical note, super helpful to just dig up your old testimony and read it. Reflect on how God has saved you when you were still walking in sin and disobedience. 
And members of this church, you have access to other testimonies of other Christians in this church. Think about how the gospel came to them in power and let that stir your heart up to pray with confidence. Now, for the gospel to actually advance in our world, we also need to pray that the Lord would protect and deliver the missionaries, ministers, and evangelists of the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Here is Paul's second prayer request. He says, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. That we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. It's important to understand here that this is not a prayer request for self-preservation for the sake of self-preservation. This is a prayer request for self-preservation for the sake of gospel advancement. Paul is calling on the Thessalonians to pray for him and his fellow missionaries that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men so that their work in the gospel and to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving world would be unhindered. And this is essential because remember, remember what Paul said in Romans 10, verse 14, how then will they, these unbelievers, call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. According to this passage, unbelievers won't come to faith unless someone tells them about the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's imperative that missionaries, ministers, and evangelists of the cross be unhindered in their work of the gospel. But the reality is there are many people in the world today who seek to oppose and hinder the advancement of the gospel. We see that in the lives of the Thessalonian church, and we see that all throughout Paul's ministry. And why is that the case? Why are there so many people who oppose the gospel? Why are there so many people who are antagonistic towards the gospel? Look at how verse 2 ends. It says, for not all have faith. That's the simple reality. Not all have faith. Not everyone is a believer. And some of these believers will engage in acts of wickedness and evil in order to stop the gospel from running swiftly in the world. Friends, we need to remember that our responsibility to people like Ricky and Charles Woodrow and Mez McConnell and all the other missionaries and all the other ministers of the gospel that we support, our responsibility to them does not begin and end with putting a dollar number in our budget. Not only should our missionaries be able to depend on our financial support, but they should be able to depend just as much or even more on our prayer support. So let's endeavor to be faithful in praying for those who are ministers of the gospel and for our church's evangelism ministry that happened on, Wednesday, on Monday nights and, and Friday afternoons. And, and let's be faithful to pray for our own personal evangelism in our own lives that the gospel would run swiftly and win souls for Christ for the honor of Jesus' name. See, Paul's trust here 
is so clearly in the faithful preaching of the gospel, in the faithful prayers of God's people, and then at the root of it all is his trust in the faithfulness of God himself. Pay attention to the stark contrast between the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Look there with me. It says at the end of verse 2, for not all have faith. He's talking about the unbelieving world. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. But the Lord is faithful. And so here's point number two, trust in God's faithfulness. Although we are Christians living in an unfaithful world, we must always remember that we worship and serve a faithful God. Now, before we go any further, I I think it's important for us to consider the question, what does it mean for God to be faithful? How do we define faithfulness? Well, I I think we can actually get a, a, a pretty good description of God's faithfulness in the very hymn that we sang earlier. You can turn to Great is Thy Faithfulness, and it says there, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. To be faithful is to be reliable, steadfast, constant, and unwavering. As you know, Queen Elizabeth II died this past week. Her passing has been the biggest news across the world in the last few days. And naturally, when an event like this happens, there are many articles, news reports, and blogs written about her. And in my own personal reading over the last few days, I came across a TGC Canada article written by Dr. Michael Haken, which was a short reflection on the life of the Queen. In that reflection, he mentions how the director of the Anglican Church Society called the late Queen Elizabeth the Faithful. Elizabeth the Faithful. Out of all the titles he could have given her, he said, Elizabeth the Faithful. And that seemed to be a fitting title considering that she reigned on the throne for 70 years and 214 days. That is the longest anyone has reigned in the British monarch. 70 years and 214 days. And not only that, in another article by the New York Times, it said, quote, she ruled for seven decades, unshakably committed to the rituals of her role amid epic social and economic change and family scandal. 70 years, prime ministers coming and going, upheaval in her family, the world before her changing, and she remained constant in her character and her commitment. If Elizabeth is known as faithful for having reigned 70 years without changing much in her character, how much more faithful is the eternal and immutable God? Queen Elizabeth was a constant presence with a consistent character, and because of that, she was called Elizabeth the Faithful. But it can only be said of God, great is thy faithfulness. His reign is everlasting. His character is unchanging forever. Now, when we study the faithfulness of God in the Scriptures, 
we see how his faithfulness is expressed and displayed. Let me just give you some quick rapid-fire answers to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 tells us that God will complete his saving work in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, when we are tempted, God will provide a way of escape so that we would endure through the temptation. Hebrews 10, 23, God keeps all of his promises. 1 Peter 4, 19, God vindicates those who suffer for his sake. And this one's familiar, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, God forgives those who confess their sins to him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And then now, as we turn to our text, we see that God's faithfulness is displayed in establishing us in our faith and protecting us from the evil one. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now, I think it's interesting to to note here that in verse 3, Paul changes the focus from himself and asking for prayer about himself and his his ministry to focusing on what God is doing in the Thessalonians' lives. He's not calling for more prayer requests concerning his ministry. Rather, he is seeking to strengthen their faith in the midst of persecution by reminding them of the faithfulness of God. This is at the very center of this text. This is where everything is is rooted and grounded. It is in the faithfulness of God. Paul wants them to so desperately know that even when the winds of suffering are blowing hard and the waves of affliction are rising high, God will keep his people rooted and grounded in the faith. You see, your standing firm as a Christian ultimately doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend on your discipline. It doesn't depend on your resolution. Your standing firm depends on God, and He is faithful to establish you. As you're seeking to hold fast to Christ and His word in the raging tempest of life, Quite simply, what Paul wants you to know is that God is holding on to your life. He will not let the winds blow you away. He will not let the waves overcome you. And he will not let the devil steal you from his grace. Look at verse 3 again. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one the evil one being a reference to Satan himself. I think when we read this text here, we need to be careful because this doesn't mean that you will never be harmed or hurt. This doesn't mean that you won't ever experience the the spiritual attacks and the deceptive snares of Satan himself. But what Paul does mean is that God will never allow Satan to take true believers away from the faith. It is right to recognize Satan as a formidable spiritual enemy. He was somehow able to hinder Paul from ever returning to Thessalonica again. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he is the one behind the scenes spreading the mystery of lawlessness and preparing the man of lawlessness to be revealed. But regardless of how powerful and formidable 
and strong Satan is, he is nothing compared to God. When God has a hold of your life, he's never letting go. Not one, not even Satan himself will be able to snatch you from the hands of God. I love this little episode of Jesus and Simon Peter recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. Just before Jesus is betrayed and arrested and abandoned by all of his disciples, he looks to Simon Peter and he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan demanded the apostle Peter, but Jesus prayed for his faith. The fact that Jesus says, when you have turned again, assumes that Peter will struggle with his faith. The devil will tempt him and will sway him, and we see that happen. Peter abandons Jesus at the moment of his arrest. Later, Peter denies Jesus three times, but because the faithful Lord Jesus prayed for him, the devil never truly had his way with Peter. And Peter did exactly what Jesus told him to do. After the death and resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, he went on to faithfully proclaim the word of the Lord, and it was through his ministry that many came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Wicked people and the evil one himself can go so far as to kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. As Christians, we belong to God. We are his people, and he will ultimately protect and preserve his people to the very end and even beyond all the way into eternity. Behind wicked and evil men stands the evil one, but behind you, brothers and sisters, stands the faithful one. God's faithfulness will establish you in the faith protect you against the evil one. And not only that, God's faithfulness will enable you to live a life of obedience. Look at verse four. Paul goes on and he says, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. The key phrase in that verse being, in the Lord. It's not about ultimately what they're doing and what, will, what they will do. It is about what the Lord enables them to do. Because God is faithful towards his people, he has full confidence that the Lord will help his people to be faithful in their walk with Christ, both in the present and in the future. Though we sail and suffer through the storms of life, we can trust in God's faithfulness to his people. Christian, God will not let you go. Even though you feel tempted, even though you feel spiritually attacked by the devil, he will not let the devil get away with it. He will not let sin rule and reign in your life. That is the objective truth. Because it doesn't depend on our faithfulness, it depends on God's faithfulness. And his faithfulness endures forever. 
But that doesn't mean that our hearts won't stumble in this life. Here's point number three. Look to God's love and Christ's perseverance. In chapter three, Paul began in verse one with a call for the Thessalonians to pray for him, but this passage ends now with Paul praying for the Thessalonians once again. It says in verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Our hearts can stumble in this world. I imagine that you can all resonate with this one way or another. When the trials are many and when suffering is harsh, the heart can so easily go in weird directions and end up in weird places. It can end up in the place of anxiety. It can end up in the place of confusion, guilt, shame, doubt, discouragement, and even despair. And for the Thessalonians, There's no doubt that their afflictions weighed heavy on their hearts and they struggled with some degree of discouragement. And so Paul prays that the faithful Lord would be their guide and lead their hearts to seek and find God's love for them. And to have hearts that are directed to the love of God is to have hearts that are led to the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 John 4, verse 9. The Apostle John writes, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is at the cross that we see the greatest display of divine love. Brothers and sisters, in a world full of suffering, there is a great need for you and I just to stop and dwell in the joy, the rest, and the beauty of God's love for you. There is a place to just be broken. There is a place just to be weak. There is a place to just know that it's okay because God loves you. He loves you. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ proves it. So the call here is to keep your eyes fixed on the cross and remember that Jesus himself did not run away from the cross. That's that's what Paul prays for next, right? Look at the end of verse five. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Now, I understand Paul to be referring to the endurance of Jesus Christ himself, demonstrated in his life of affliction and suffering. Just think about it. Although he was wrongly accused, reviled, beaten, tortured, spat on, mocked, and ultimately crucified, Jesus faithfully stayed the course. Jesus stayed on the path without veering to the right or to the left. He didn't run away. He didn't turn his back on his people. He embraced all of the persecution and suffering so that he would save you and give you an inspiring an example to follow. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
You are called to persevere in the midst of suffering. But the Lord Jesus never commands you to do something that he himself would not do. The path of suffering that you are on is a path that has already been traveled by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Savior that is able to help you and guide you in the way that you ought to go. This is a Savior that is able to sympathize you in your weakness, in your failures, and in all of your shortcomings. Because he knows how hard the suffering can be. He experienced the worst of it. So my dear friends, don't look away. Don't look away from Jesus. Don't look to worldly comfort or the fleeting pleasures of sin. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. He is your faithful Lord, and he is your faithful guide through the treacherous storms of life. If you keep your eyes fixed on him, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and just follow his lead, you will get to where you need to go. He will lead you into the path of righteousness. He will lead you to the place of peace. And he will lead you into that glorious, eternal rest. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. He is your faithful Lord. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Oh, Lord, with all the distractions, with all the spectacles, with all the, the trickery of Satan all around us, Lord, we pray that we would not look away. Pray that we would not look away from Jesus Christ. He is our faithful Lord. He is our sufficient Savior. He is the one that we put all of our hope in. So please give us much grace to keep our eyes on Christ and to run this race that you have called us to until you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.